Hi, I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we're the co-hosts of Stuff You Missed in History Class. We are a history podcast that tries to look at the things that maybe were overlooked in your history classes, maybe not covered in as much detail, or frankly, maybe covered in a way that was not accurate. New episodes come out every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else that podcasts can be listened to. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this is part four of our series on romantic comedies. And today we are going to bust a rom-com myth that only white people fall in love. (laughs) Who knew? Who knew? Yeah, we're looking uh, at rom-coms of color, you could call them, <laughs> really focusing, though, on black romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. And one of the most stunning things to realize in reading for this episode, Caroline, is how romantic comedies are one of, if not the most segregated mm-hmm. genres in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's it's uh, romantic comedies starring black people are hardly marketed to the white audience because so many people in Hollywood at the executive level just assume that white audiences will not be interested. But it creates that horrific loop of like, oh, well, they're not marketing it to us. So I never develop an interest in it. So I'm never going to go see it. And that just reinforces the executive's assumptions that, oh, we'll see. Larger audiences aren't going to go see these quote-unquote black romantic comedies. Whereas rom-coms starring white people, of course, are not called white rom-coms. They're called mainstream. Right. White people. Yes. White people are referred to as mainstream audiences. Yeah. I mean, even though, and this is a whole other tangent that we don't really need to get into, but if you just look at the per capita ticket sales of who goes to see movies, African-Americans and Latinos Mm -hmm. per capita, like buy far more movie tickets than so-called mainstream audiences. Yeah. So the whole, you know, all these marketing arguments, I think, are um, a bit of a stretch sometimes. Um, But if we even look at interracial rom-coms or romances, because some of these movies we're going to talk about kind of straddle that line between rom-com or just straight-up romance. Um, but even today, interracial films, interracial romances, whether mm-hmm. comedic or not, are considered taboo. Yeah. Um, and I think a good way to get into this conversation is if we go to a Jet Magazine piece from 1990 that really spelled out this issue. Um, it was called Why Blacks Don't Get Romantic Roles in Movies. So it's been years since I've seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with Sidney Poitier. Also, uh, I can't remember the lead actress's name, but her parents are played by Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Classic rom-com couple. So it's such a great movie, but... Sidney Poitier was not permitted, his character was not permitted to kiss, touch, caress, hug, anything, his fiance. Yeah, so that goes all the way back to uh, the Hollywood Code, I think, enacted in 1934, an anti-miscegenation 
rule essentially saying that people who do not have the same skin color can not caress or kiss. Um, and this was one reason, as we talked about in our episode on the stereotyping and exoticizing of Asian women, one reason why a uh, silver screen actress, Anna Mae Wong, was never really able to break through and get all these leading roles because, per Hollywood rules, she could never kiss a white man on screen. Yeah. So that was the Hayes Code that we talked about in our first episode. And the reason that those, uh, like, segregated couples' rules ended up embedded in the Hayes Code was that the majority of states in this country still had those anti-miscegenation laws. And so they weren't going to have their movies breaking state laws, i.e. they wanted to make as much money as they possibly could. And if they risked showing a movie in a state that would be against that, then they'd lose money. And it's for that reason that in the 1987 film Fatal Beauty, Whoopi Goldberg claimed that a love scene between her and co-star Sam Elliott was cut because of studio racism, because it would be too racy to show those two having sex. But she made the great point in that article. She was quoted in that Jet Magazine article as saying, if he had put money on the table at the end of our sexual encounter, they would have left the clip in, which is such an indictment of Hollywood racism, but so true, so accurate. Two people who just are attracted to each other having sex, that's not okay if they're of a different race. But, oh, if it were a prostitution scene, like, uh, we'll let a, a black lady have sex with a white dude. Well, and even if it is, you know, two people of color having sex, uh, Willis Edwards, who was the former president of the Beverly Hills NAACP chapter, told Jet Magazine that Hollywood has never wanted us to have love interests. They feel it won't sell in Peoria or in Mississippi. We're looked upon as comedians, not as people who have families and intimacy. Yeah, and we saw that, you know, in our last episode on Sidekicks, that you get the token black character who's typically two-dimensional, some kind of either sassy woman or spiritual guide of some kind, rather than getting the actual three-dimensional character treatment. Yeah, and it was actually for that reason that Spike Lee made the films uh, 1986's She's Gotta Have It and 1990's Mo Betta Blues because he figured that the only way to change that situation was to just make the films that he wanted to see. Yeah. Um, and, of course, there are black romantic comedies. There are black romances. Um, but the the segregation of the whole thing is really is, is just stunning to me over and over again, because before reading up for this episode and. I am about to show my whiteness. I'm even wearing a white button-down dress, listeners, which is appropriate, because I was not aware of the depth and critical range of the black rom-com canon that exists. Mm -hmm. And it's because... When I had been seen, you know, shown those movies, it's like, oh, well, those, that's a black rom-com. Okay. It's like, we, we grow up, you and I are, are white women. We probably did not grow up watching black romantic comedies. Mm -hmm. Um, in the same way, I have a feeling that there are plenty of, you know, women of color who are like, yeah, I didn't grow up watching Notting Hill and my best friend's wedding. Um, but this episode for me was, uh, a revelation in just how, 
just how racist Hollywood is. Yeah. Even I mean, today. the only black romance I grew up watching was How Stella Got Her Groove Back, which is I would not classify that as a rom-com. But but it, I think romance in this convo, though, some romances are going to count just because. Yeah. It, those kinds of movies are so significant because How Stella Got Her Groove Back definitely crossed into, quote unquote, mainstream audiences. Right. Exactly. You're the mainstream, Caroline. <laughs> Little Caroline. Yo, I'm the mainstream now, dog. Um, and so it makes sense that in 2014, The Roots' Kelly Goff was super not happy by when she saw New York Magazine's list of the top 25 rom-coms that had come out since When Harry Met Sally and saw that it didn't contain a single black-led film. And not only did it not contain a single black-led romantic comedy, but the reasoning for that that was provided by the two white guy critics who wrote the list is so ridiculous and and Goff appropriately skewers them for this. So they basically said, or they did say, quote, there are movies this list needs. We have a couple of LGBT rom-coms on there, but we wish there could be more. And while African-American rom-coms, as exemplified in films like The Best Man and Waiting to Exhale and About Last Night, have thrived during this time, we couldn't agree on any titles we felt were strong enough to warrant inclusion on this list. And Goff is like, are you kidding me? It never occurred to you? Uh... Two white guys who were like, I don't know how to pick a black rom-com, so I'm just not going to talk about them. To maybe ask a, a woman or a person of color for ideas? Yeah. Um, or consider the fact that maybe maybe just one Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore rom-com is enough. Because, no, Fifty First States is not one of the 25 best rom-coms that has come out ever since When Harry Met Sally. Maybe one of the worst movies. They also listed Her, which... Feels like a stretch. And also, I love you, Philip Morris. Which, again, it's like, okay, in what way is her a better rom-com than The Best Man? Which, yes, listeners, I spent this weekend watching The Best Man and The Best Man Holiday. And let me tell you what a delight both of them were. Um, because, A, Tay Diggs does follow stuff I've never told you on Twitter. And I kept just wanting to tweet him how much I was really enjoying um, his, his film because you just get to see Tay Diggs shirtless a lot, but also Morris <laughs> Chestnut shirtless a lot. Um, <laughs> there's just a lot of really, uh, really handsome chests and jawlines in those movies. <laughs> but but um, my uh, objectifying, my sexual objectifying aside, they were just really enjoyable ensemble films. Um, so... Yeah, just seeing seeing that was, was just, a little astonishing. They, uh, huh. I mean, the fact that there were no black-led rom-coms in this list, like I said, it's bad enough. But to come out and say, like, don't you hear yourself talking mm -hmm. is my question to these gentlemen. Like, don't you hear the words that you just said? Why don't you ask someone or go watch them? Well, and it perpetuates the myth that... There are no good black rom-coms. Yeah, well, and also it just perpetuates the point of view of the white man being the the norm, being the standard. Because, yeah, like maybe they, okay, so maybe these guys did watch a bunch of black-led romantic comedies. But if your baseline for what is normal, good, funny, whatever, is only ever going to be Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson, 
Like maybe maybe it's time to as critics and just as consumers of media to broaden your horizons. Well, and a lot of it speaks to just the marginalization of black led films, which is something that we've talked about before in our episode on uh black female film directors. Shout out to Gina Blythe Prince in Love and Basketball, by the way, which I also watched. Um, and I will get to it in a second, Caroline, because I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, but I have a feeling there is this mainstream notion that black comedy is exclusive only to Tyler Perry today Ugh. and that it is comedy that is inaccessible and unrelatable to white audiences and is um, and, and that is as good as it gets, mm-hmm. which really couldn't be farther from the truth, especially when we're talking about classic rom-coms, because surprise, surprise, other white listeners, if we look at the mainstream heyday, the white heyday of rom-coms, starting with 1989's When Harry Met Sally and into the 90s, you have a similar kind of heyday happening in black-led rom-coms as well, or just the more rom with a little bit of calm, but more rom. Yeah, and so, you know, When Harry Met Sally came out in 1989, launches the 90s modern neo-romantic comedy. A year before that, though, you have one of my favorite romantic comedies in the world, 1988's Coming to America. With Eddie Murphy and his sidekick, Arsenio Hall. So good. It's got the, it's the full, I mean, it's a full romantic comedy. It's got the happy ending. It's got the, 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 um, masquerade, the deception. Uh, and it's a, it's absolutely a black led film. And see, why then is Coming to America, which I agree is absolutely hilarious. Um, it's peak Eddie Murphy. <laughs> um, why is that not in those lists that are all over the internet. I don't know, because it's literally, it, it fulfills just about every trope, for better or worse, that there is, that's discussed in all the rom-com academia. I think it's because we have this idea that a romantic comedy is inherently a white film. I would agree. And you can have a white comedian in a romantic comedy leading role, and it's still a mainstream romantic comedy, but you have a black comedian leading a black-led romantic comedy, and it becomes like a black comedy, or just a just a comedy, rather than what it is, which is a true romantic comedy. Well, in one of those classics of the black-led rom-coms that I could not find anywhere on the internet to watch, mm-hmm. which I'm really disappointed about, is Love Jones from 1997, mm-hmm. because it's cited over and over and over again as the holy grail of black rom-coms. Mm. Um, but I couldn't find it, listeners. I have to be honest with you, so I have not seen it. Um, but I did watch The Best Man, and of course then I had to wa- fo- watch the follow-up, The Best Man Holiday, mm-hmm. um, and also watched Love and Basketball. And uh, with all of these, you see this uh, familiar cast of rom-com leads in the same way that you see the uh, Meg Ryans and Julia Robertses and Hugh Grants of white films with Sanaa Lathan, Nia Long, Gabrielle Union, Morris Chestnut, again, Tay Diggs, Tay Diggs forever. <laughs> um, Do you, are you going to get that tattooed? Uh, well, you know what? After watching The Best Man, The Best Man Holiday, um, 
if I had to play um, uh, Bang, Mary Kill with Morris <laughs> Chestnut, Tay Diggs, and Terrence Howard, okay, um, I I think I would. Oh man. <laughs> I would want to look at Morris Chestnut for a really long time and then, but then I'd have to kill him. And then <laughs> I would sleep with Tay Diggs, but I would marry Terrence Howard. Really? Yeah. I mean, he's like, he's, he's the bad boy in both of those films. Um, but. Oh, Christian wants to, did you hear that? World, Christian wants to marry the bad boy. I mean, he's just like, he's just got a, a certain charm. Um, that, that I really enjoyed. And there was an interview over at IndieWire with the director of, um, of The Best Man, who was talking about how it's funny to him that it's always categorized as a rom-com because he was like, no, this isn't so much a rom-com. It's just an ensemble film for me. But Mm -hmm. simply because of how white Hollywood, you know, so like narrowly interprets black film um it's it's got to be a romantic comedy because there is some comedy in it and some rom and some rom and plenty of com romedy yes well Kristen, the year after the best man came out in 99 in 2000 you get love and basketball and you said that there was more you had to say about that Oh, I've got so much to say. So, Love and Basketball stars Sanaa Lathan and also um, Alfre Woodard, uh, Omar Epps, all-star cast. And it's a coming-of-age story, which I love. And it's also, Caroline, one of the most feminist films I have ever seen, hands down, from the get-go. It does play on some tropes of... The sporty girl gets a makeover from her sister and, you know, catches the neighbor boy's eye because suddenly it's like, you know, the, the librarian taking her hair down kind of moment. Mm-hmm. But Monica, Sanaa Lathan's character, is so self-possessed from the get-go, knowing that not only is she good at basketball, that she is better than the boys at basketball. And she's so singularly focused on her drive. She doesn't care about looking pretty. She doesn't care about, you know, uh, all of these other girls who are trying to, you know, hook up with her neighbor who she's secretly in love with, played by Omar Epps. Um, and there's just all of these really fascinating relationships, too, between Omar Epps and his father, who is a retired professional basketball player, but also Monica and her mother, who is a stay-at-home mom, who have a lot of tension between them because she's not conventionally, like, girly enough, you know, Mm -hmm. but it turns out her mom thinks that she doesn't have respect for her, you know, as a stay-at-home mother. And they're just like, I don't know, there are all these... Feminist themes that come up in it and a lot of conversations that felt very familiar as just a girl who has grown up um, and a lot of themes that we've talked about on Stuff Mom Never Told You before. And it just so happened that it starred an all black cast. Yeah. Feminist is not normally a word you hear thrown around when people are discussing romantic comedies. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, and that's why I kept, honestly, Caroline, I wanted to call you so many times <laughs> as I was watching it, but it was a Saturday. <laughs> and, uh, cause, cause I wanted, that should be a movie that we perhaps live, uh, podcast or tweet or Mystery Science Theater 3000 it somehow, because I want to watch it with you. Yeah. I want to share this movie with you because I really love it so much. We'll get some popcorn. Hang out. Some sodas? Yeah, some sodas. 
and maybe some and chocolates. Be in a PJs. Yes. Um, so in addition to that, of course, you have classics like 2002's uh, Black Sugar. You have Waiting to Exhale. Uh, two can play at that game. The Wood. I also, <laughs> last night, I, I tried to watch Boomerang from uh, 1992. Also Eddie Murphy. Also Eddie Murphy. Young Chris Brown. Young Halle Berry. And I could not. I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Um, I, I switched. Actually, not switched quite over. As... Definitely not a feminist film. Yeah, I was gonna say. Um, it was. Uh, I bet it has a little bit of payoff more toward the end. But there is only so much of Eddie Murphy as a womanizer that I could take. Although it also um, co-stars. Eartha Kitt, who does mm. do her signature Catwoman yeah. growl at one point, uh, which was enjoyable. But yeah, uh, Coming to America, much better than Boomerang. So much better. But the interesting thing is, oh, speaking of our last rom-com series episode on sidekicks, mm-hmm. that's a movie where kind of like When Harry Met Sally, two sidekicks, David Allen Greer and Halle Berry, end up getting together. Oh. Mm-hmm. Does that further the plot? Caroline, I didn't get far enough. I couldn't. I couldn't tell <laughs> you. I hadn't taken. I had literally switched over to uh, to Whiteville on Netflix, watching Lady Dynamite starring Maria Bamford. Whiteville isn't Lady Dynamite good? It's pretty good we'll, so far. We'll have to do another episode on that. We won't. We won't be talking about that. But uh, in our introductory episode to this uh, summer series on romantic comedies, we did mention the film Meet the Patels, which is its more like of a documentary style. It's its not straight rom-com. But we bring that up to illustrate that there are so few romantic comedy-esque films out there. I mean, let alone for a black audience, but like, let's talk about how Indian audiences are not exactly represented. Asian audiences in general are not very well represented when it comes to romantic comedies. But I would love to see Meet the Patels. It's from 2014. Jita Patel follows her brother Ravi on his exploits to find the love of his life. Although it's more his parents finding the love of his life. Yeah. Yes. Arranged marriage. Um, in 2004, there was sort of a Bollywood Hollywood mashup remake of Pride and Prejudice called Bride and Prejudice, which also sounds like something I need to watch immediately. Um, you also have 2013's for, is this the first Asian American rom-com? Yes. Uh, in, in this country, obviously. Yeah. And, and we should say that when we're talking about there are like no other rom-coms starring people of color. Made in Hollywood in right, the United States. There right. Are, yeah. Yes, that is a good thing to specify. <laughs> yes, this is very, very Hollywood and U.S. specific. Although I believe Bride and Prejudice was made in the U.K., but it still counted uh, in the list because part of it took place in the U.S. Yes, it, they travel to the U.S. They also travel to England. So there's a lot of like globe hopping going on. It's a lot of traveling. A lot of traveling. A lot of, tra- a lot of getting on airplanes. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, uh, in 2013, we get The Wedding Palace, which doesn't look great, but a lot of the commenters on that website that we were reading defended it, saying that the author, being a white person, just didn't have the same like contextual information about Korean rom-coms and culture to appreciate it. Yeah, and for fans of Margaret Cho, she does have a cameo role in that. Um, and you're right, it was critically panned, which is a bummer because it was at least 
marketed as the first Asian American rom-com. And there are parts of it that look really enjoyable, um, but also parts of it that make it look uh, tough to get through. There are like almost one too many twists. Oh, seems like a little too M. Night Shyamalan, but, but, but <laughs> romantic and, and funny. Exactly. A little too uh, rom-com Shyamalan. <laughs> nice. We are coining all sorts of things all over the place. But one thing that jumped out in contemporary conversations around Hollywood and rom-coms is the question of whether the genre itself is dying. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, in 2012, Vulture over at New York Magazine wanted to know whether the rom-com could even be saved from breaking up due to Hollywood financing more blockbusters instead of one-offs because mm-hmm. those big Michael Bay blockbusters end up making more money internationally. Yeah. So they're more enticing. You also have just the formula itself being a little bit stale because of the rising age of marriage, the dating landscape being completely disrupted by technology, and millennials being arguably more concerned about ourselves than finding someone else to make us happily ever after. Because it's like, I mean, if we can post the right thing on Instagram and go viral, like, why why do we need someone else? It's the era of self-care. It's perfectly put. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, certain, certain things, Kristen, are being ignored in the conversation about rom-coms going bust. And that is the fact, well, it's related to what you said at the top of the podcast with black audiences and Hispanic audiences in this country paying per capita a ton to go to the theater. That Vulture piece from 2012 pointed out that that year's highest grossing romantic comedy was Kevin Hart's Think Like a Man, which raked in 91 million. But they said, quote, never truly broke out beyond its predominantly African-American target audience. But that's one of the most marginalizing statements you could make about Think Like a Man, which, yes, was based on the Steve Harvey book, Think Like a Man. Shaking my head. (laughs) Um Because to brush it aside, simply because a lot of people of color came out to the theater to see it, says a lot about the problem that Hollywood is in, not the problem that the rom-com genre is in, in my mind. Because that $91 million box office, Caroline, knocked Hunger Games off its top spot. Yeah, so the fact that you have... A film that is bringing in so much money. It is so successful. Why do you care who's going to see it? Like, you should just be noting how much money it's bringing in and it is therefore successful. But somehow it's discounted because it's bringing in an audience that's made made up largely of people of color. It doesn't make any sense. Hollywood, if we've learned anything doing this podcast, one of the things that we've learned is that Hollywood will fund the stuff that brings in money. But is this an exception? Or, I mean, the dynamics here are so confusing. I mean, well, it's all part of cyclical marginalization based on this Hollywood idea that, and, and, and true to some extent, that white people will not go to see movies with black people. Like, those stories are not for us, you know. And also, there's with that the snobbery of like, oh, I mean, the, those kinds of movies, those aren't those aren't very good movies. Why would we want to go see something like that? 
And this is something that uh, Indiana University telecom professor Andrew J. Weaver explored in the study, the role of actors race in white audiences, selective exposure to movies. In other words, Dr. Weaver was looking at, you know, if if we see too many people with dark skin on screen, will uh, white people just up and flee? And Weaver writes, it becomes a vicious cycle. Producers are hesitant to cast minorities in race-neutral romantic roles because of a fear that the white audience will perceive the films as not for them, but white audiences perceive romantic films with minorities as not for them because they seldom see minorities in race-neutral romantic roles. Yeah, and so then Hollywood gets scared about creating these... uh Movies led by people of color, unless, for instance, it's a known quantity, like a bankable star, a Will Smith, a Whitney Houston. God, Whitney Houston in movies is my favorite thing. I mean, I know The Bodyguard is a rom-drom, not a rom-com, but I mean, you've got that. You've got Waiting to Exhale. You've got The Preacher's Wife. Oh, God. What about Denzel? Has Denzel starred in a rom-com opposite a white female? I don't think so. I don't know. But, I mean, he's definitely, like, a mega movie star. He had that. He was the star in that, admittedly terrible, and not because of him, but that airplane movie where he was, like, the drunk pilot. Oh, yeah. Where, and that's, that's like, what it was called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is totally, I mean, a huge movie star role for, for anyone. But, um yeah, I mean, I, I when Hollywood does finally step on that, step out on that ledge, it has to be with an actor or actress who's proven him or herself usually in music because you've also got queen latifah who's who's been successful in films but she's also been successful in music first same with will smith same with whitney houston well and j-lo queen Uh, of rom-coms yeah 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 yeah. but there's so much more significance to this than just hollywood box office numbers because this really is something we should care about it because at their love and basketball best these are stories that we, all of us, need to see, especially here in the United States, I would argue, because there's stories of how black people love. And that's something that Shivandra Harris wrote about over at the Huffington Post. Yeah, I mean, Harris refers to this as an overlooked aspect of black culture. I mean, you know, Hunter Harris, writing for IndieWire in 2016, wrote that, you know, we've got slave drama after slave drama coming out. And that's good. We can't forget these things. We need the visibility of films like Selma or Birth of a Nation. Absolutely. And that gives roles to black actors. But like, where are the films just showing us as as people, normal people who live normal lives and fall in and out of love like anyone else? Yeah, um, Shivandra Harris in that HuffPo piece wrote, with well-rounded characters, big city backdrops, and the perfect blend of drama, sex, and comedy, they managed to brilliantly capture the joys, pains, and complexities and uniqueness of black men and women falling in, out, and over love. And that's so much contrast, the kinds of roles that the Film Academy recognizes people of color for. And I think it was Hunter Harris over at IndieWire who tallied up that nine of the ten black women ever nominated for an Oscar played a character who was either homeless or on the verge of homelessness, and that 13 of the 20 black Oscar-nominated actors played characters who had been 
arrested. And more recently, I remember, I think it was right after Sundance when maybe it was Birth of a Nation, whatever the, uh, the Nat Turner, um, biopic that's coming out received all of these rave reviews. And the sentiment on Twitter was, yay, <laughs> because it's like, okay, yes, these are stories that need to be told, but mm-hmm. can we be shown as more than slaves, yeah. please? Um, and a lot of this perpetuates the othering of black relationships and that kind of ordinary and extraordinary black love that Shivandra Harris loves to see so much on screen. Um, and this is going back to Hunter Harris at IndieWire, who says that black relationships should be visible enough to be ordinary and not always have happy endings. You should be able to have a black Annie Hall or a black 500 Days of Summer. Um, that was me adding that in there, not uh, Hunter Harris. Um, although who would the black Woody Allen be? Answer, I don't want to know because we don't need another Woody Allen. Boom. <laughs> Harris goes on to say, there's no monolithic blackness, and there ought to be more movies that appreciate that black lives don't only matter, but contain multitudes. Black characters with full romantic lives don't always need to end in a punchline. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons, too, that we are citing some more straight up ROMs than just rom-coms in this episode. And we're going to look at more of these tropes and formulas and caricature outlines that exist in these romantic comedies when we come right back from a quick break. Caroline, this summer, I might not be able to go on vacation all the time, but I can treat myself every night if I want to, to delicious, sustainable meals from BlueApron.com. Because Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. And they've established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. to ensure things like free-range chicken, humanely raised beef, and sustainably sourced seafood. And what's great is that Blue Apron can be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. and 99.5% of food deserts in this country. And what's more, cooking together builds strong family bonds. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often, and I can vouch for that when I... And I can vouch for that. When my boyfriend and I get Blue Apron, we stay in and cook those delicious meals. Things like spicy Korean rice cakes with snow peas and pea shoots, sweet chili ponzu catfish and green beans with coconut ginger rice, and even New England-style salmon rolls with roasted potatoes and chives. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-proportioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. So to check out this week's menu and get your first two meals free with free shipping, head on over to blueapron.com slash mom stuff. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Head on over to blueapron.com slash mom stuff. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So, Caroline, before we crack open uh, this genre, I want to make a note that of the rom-com scholarship that you and I have been loving, a lot of them completely gloss over black romantic comedies. 
Yeah. There was one paper that I could find. No, two papers, excuse me. There was one paper and one thesis that I could find really examining black-led romantic comedies, even in in like the, the books, the full, the books, fully published hundreds of pages books, yeah. searching through them for citations and explorations of the black rom-com genre. Yeah. Because due to the segregation of it, I would... Um, describe it as its own genre. Th- there's nothing. There's like no acknowledgement. It's like, uh, yeah, uh. you get so much scholarship on the screwball era, the sex comedy era, and then as we get into the 70s and 80s, like the nervous romances and the like neo romantic comedy, all starring white people, completely ignoring that there is the parallel existence and flourishing of black-led romantic comedies. Yeah. And, like, no history that I could find. Yeah. And listeners, if you... I know we have a lot of cinema buffs listening. If you do know of a solid history of black rom-coms, please send it our way. Well, I mean, you know, every every black character that you had in the era of Screwball, for instance. I mean, the women were maids. The men were like, if they were not some sort of servant role character, they were going to be some like horrifically tropey racist sidekick um, who did nothing but allow the main white character to make fun of him. So, yeah, I I would also be interested in a more academic take on African-Americans in rom-com history. Yeah, one of the earliest black-led rom-coms that I could find discussed at any length was uh, 1974's Claudine, starring Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones, um, which people today take issue with because uh, it very much perpetuates the welfare queen type of stereotype. But um, I couldn't find, yeah, any, any explanation or exposition on how more of those came to be because it seems like then from there that's 1974 from there you get Eddie Murphy who becomes so popular that he can start making his own films and then you get Spike Lee it's like I I guess maybe it is the Spike Lee school of thought of like well we just have to start making the films that we want to see that have us in them yeah and I mean you do have Gregory Hines in there you have that quote from him that you sent me where he said when I got to be 15 or 16 years old I noticed that I wasn't represented there weren't any black people up there making love. That's from that 1990 Jet Magazine article. And I guess, yeah, I mean, I unless people can can give us some more info, it does seem like it's an issue of we've got to get these things made ourselves. Well, it's very reflective of our conversation about uh, black female directors and filmmakers who are continually shut down by the big machine Hollywood and just have to kind of self-fund and indie make their films. Uh, But thankfully, we do have Karen Beaudray of Indiana University, who is a semiologist who has analyzed in depth the black rom-com genre. And she looked at how the typical boy meets girl, boy loses girl, and then does everything he can to regain the girl or girl regain guy formula is often readjusted in black-led films, starting with meet-cutes. 
Those are not usually seen as much in uh, black rom-coms because a lot of times the romantic relationships are already established when we meet those leads. So there isn't a ton of the development of the the falling in love necessarily. And where so many of the romantic comedy tropes that we've discussed previously have revolved around the withholding of sex, sex being this abstract future thing that we never see but that creates all of this delicious tension, Baudre writes about how sex commonly either has already happened in the black rom-com couple's existence or it's something that happens like on the first date. We also tend to see less emotional vulnerability from leading ladies who are often tougher than her white counterparts. And to that point, uh, black Hollywood producer Rodney Barnes, who's made uh, The Boondocks and Everybody Hates Chris, told, I believe it was the L.A. Times, that, quote, women are painted as problematic and undesirable characters only seeking helpmates to raise their child. And all their male counterpart has to do is be sexy with no intelligence or moral values. He simply has to take his shirt off, glisten, and wait for the end credits. So it sounds like we have some some issues here with this kind of rom-com formula, uh, which Professor Baudre says is really the long shadow of racism being reflected on screen because we have seen historically the comical devaluing and hypersexualizing of black bodies. So as a result, Baudre writes that, quote, black characters are denied mature relationships that our culture reveres and thus the access such relationships bring to achieving heroic or human status. And that's a pretty like grim portrayal of things. Um, there are some who just think that this different type of rom-com formula that we're likelier to see in black-led films just more accurately reflects how people of color approach dating and love a little bit differently. Um, but especially when you do look at um, the stereotypes that pop up in a lot of black rom-coms and the type of calm that you find in the rom and the ratio of calm to rom <laughs> to drum to drum uh, it's hard to argue against uh, you know Baudre, Baudre's theory that there is that long shadow of racism as she calls it on the devaluing of black bodies right and reinforcing stereotypes about hypersexuality of black people or fill in the stereotype here the Jezebel the sapphire what have you that black women are either going to be sassy they're going to be angry they're going to be oversexed you know the cold independent the black version of the cold independent Sandra Bullock in like the proposal And there was a piece over at Bitch Media that was taking issue with the stereotyping of women in black rom-coms. And like you said, putting them kind of into those buckets of a Jezebel temptress or the angry, emasculating Sapphire um, who... Shelby in the Best Man franchise definitely embodies. Um, You also have... The matriarch, who would also be Mia, I would argue, in the Best Man franchise, as well as uh, the welfare queen. And while, yes, those can be problematic stereotypes, 
I do wonder if it's not also just a product of just rom-coms in general, because there's so, ma- so much stereotyping. We've super tropey. Yeah, that we've talked about of of white char- leading characters as well. Yeah, and so much of rom-coms in general, so much of their formula is, I mean, well, literally being formulaic. It's It's presenting you with these outlines that you can easily recognize. So it doesn't require hours of backstory and exposition. You just know like, okay, so I'm supposed to think that she's the slutty one and he's the player and like she's the cold career woman. And that allows you to quickly move through the plot and not have to be too confused about why these two people are falling in love because you just know from the get go. Oh, well, we just know they're supposed to end up together. Yeah. I mean, and well, I, I just said two seconds ago, well, like, well, kind of two wrongs make a right thing of like, well, white ladies are, are stereotyped in rom-coms, too. But of course, they don't come with all of that racist and hypersexualized baggage. Like in white rom-coms, even an ice queen is like tacitly permitted love. We still sure. expect to see... Sandra Bullock in The Proposal, who I feel like we've talked about more than anybody else mm-hmm. in this series, we still are fine with her falling in love, whereas it might not be quite the same when you're playing around with these more racist stereotypes. Um, because Baudry says that compared to black female protagonists, um, white ladies are usually permitted more vulnerability. They're u- allowed to kind of evaluate the qualities of their ideal mates and pick and choose more. Um, she says their hegemonic notions of black womanhood that portray them as over-sexualized and strong to the point of isolation. Not to mention that some people are concerned that a lot of the, the calm that you might see in more of a black-led rom-com plays up the racist stereotypes of just black foolishness as well. So it's like, well, what are we really what are we really serving up here? Um, although, again, I would say that white led rom coms aren't flawless either. But again, then you come back to. But racism, but, but racism, but racism. Well, yeah, but racism and also taboos. I mean, we mentioned miscegenation and people's misgivings about interracial romances. I mean, take a movie like Hitch. You know, we we did mention this in our last episode. But, you know, Will Smith, uh, a black man, stars opposite Eva Mendes. And that was rather on purpose because Will Smith broke it down in an article, uh, in an interview, where he basically said, uh, you know, if uh, I were to star opposite a black woman... That would have been okay elsewhere in the world, but not in the U.S., because then it would have been a black comedy. If I had starred opposite a white woman, that also would have been okay in other parts of the world, but not in the U.S., because we're apparently not there yet. So they got Eva Mendez, who's beautiful, but brown, but not too dark, and she's not black, and hopefully this makes it universal, as all of the executives were saying with their fingers crossed. Yeah, Smith even went on to say that, quote, ironically, Hollywood is happy to do it, i.e., like pairing up... Uh, a black man and a woman romantically, if the film is about racism, mm-hmm. but they won't simply do it and ignore it. So it was actually a really big deal when the 2015 comedy thriller Focus came out, not necessarily a rom-crom, <laughs> rom-crom, maybe more of a rom-crom because it had crime in it. Um, <laughs> but uh, it starred Will Smith 
opposite Margot Robbie. And it was the very first time Will Smith got sexy with a white lady on screen. And there was a piece in the Daily Beast all about how racists were freaking out about the movie's quote-unquote race mixing. Oh, come on. Yeah, that was from 2015. Um, so, uh, and Spike Lee, too, has said that uh, interracial relationships on screen are still, like, the number one taboo in Hollywood. Um, but in terms of this, like, J-Lo is a really interesting character to look at, and one that uh, Caitlin Mortimer, in her thesis, Romantic Comedy examined. Yeah, J-Lo is interesting because she is allowed, so to speak, to have interracial romances in Hollywood, but it's because she's, like, safely ethnic. She's also one of those known quantities that we mentioned earlier. She proved her popularity as a singer, as a dancer, as a, a general entertainer, and so people seem to have less of a problem with her romancing people like Matthew McConaughey or Ray Fiennes. Oh, but also... Considering the historic hypersexualization and fear of black men preying on white women, mm-hmm. is it any wonder that it took until 2015 for one of the most bankable stars in Hollywood, who also happens to be black, to star romantically opposite a white woman? I mean, that's how strong that racism is. Yeah. And that even even then there were concerns of race mixing. I mean, I think that that taboo of a of a black man opposite a white female romantic lead is the biggest taboo of all mm-hmm. because it confronts all of those fears, which is, shout out to the small screen, one of the reasons why I really do love Broad City oh so much uh, for Ilana and Lincoln's interracial romance, which I think Alana Glazer would like spit take if she heard it described as an interracial romance um, between her and Hannibal Burris. Uh, but it's fantastic because it's just they just like each other. Like it is what it is. There's no um, there doesn't have to be commentary or explanation. Exactly. As I wish we would see from a rom-com. Well, yeah, because that's how real life is. Mm-hmm. Real life and real love is, sure, it's messy and complicated, but also once you fall in love with somebody, it's really no no big deal. Well, and one movie I want to see that I do think is more rom than rom-com uh, that came up a lot in uh, things we were reading about interracial romances on screen was Something New, starring Sanaa Latham, who falls in love with a white gardener. Um, he played by some handsome guy with, like, scruffy blonde hair and crinkly blue eyes. You'd recognize him if you saw him. Um, but apparently it's really good. I remember hmm. seeing the previews when it first came out. And rolled my eyes a little bit, but uh, apparently it's, a, it's actually a good example of kind of oh. confronting uh. those taboos. It is pretty crazy, and I think that what Willis Edwards, that former president of the Beverly Hills NAACP, said in that Jet Magazine article in 1990 still stands. And why can't Hollywood seem to catch up to so much of the rest of the country because they do still have to play to, as he said, Peoria and Mississippi, that you still have so many people who are going to vote with their dollars or vote by being awful on Twitter uh, about how they will not go see plot lines like that. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah. And um, I, I think maybe a sign of our true cultural progress will be um, when black rom-coms are just rom-coms. The first thing that came to mind is, as you were also saying that, Caroline, was the movie Dope, which I've oh, only so seen. Oh, so good. Yeah, I've only seen bits and pieces of it, but wouldn't it count as a rom-com? Kind of, sort of. I mean, there's a romantic yeah. interest. Yeah, I but, mean, but it's a great, it's just a great movie. Yeah, and I it love was, it. And it was marketed as a mainstream movie, hmm. even though it had a black leading cast. Yeah, it's funny because I literally never saw it marketed or advertised or anything. I just, my boyfriend and I watched it on HBO. See, also, man, technology is going to change things because you're right, Caroline. We Advertising is even changing. Yeah. So I don't, knows? I don't see commercials for movies ever anymore at all. So I, I don't even know what, what's coming out. And that's funny because the first time I became aware of dope was because of like one of those, uh, uh posters, um, on a, uh, like an abandoned building, <laughs> uh, across the street from a brunch place I was at, <laughs> which, <laughs> hi, did I mention that I'm so white? Um, <laughs> but now listeners, uh, we really want to hear from you on this, uh, because there, there's so much in here to talk about and so many films that we didn't even have time to mention. So we want to know your favorites and curious to know your thoughts on, the segregation of rom-coms and the marginalization of black rom-coms in particular and whether we can ever kind of get over that or if we even should get over that. Uh, MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. All right. I've got a letter here from Mary Rose. She says, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and especially loved your recent episode on women and political campaigns. My first job out of college was managing a state Senate race. And while it remains one of my favorite jobs to date, it was also an incredibly eye opening experience into everyday sexism. As campaign manager, I worked more on political strategy and press relations than on fundraising or field operations for which I hired staff. Despite this, I was often confused for either my boss's wife or his daughter when I attended events with him. He was 41 at the time and I was 22. Someone even gave me their drink order at a campaign event once. As you discussed on the podcast, there were also some misconceptions and general weirdness due to the fact that I was a young woman working for a middle-aged male candidate. While my boss was as appropriate and professional as they come, when I was first offered the job, my boyfriend at the time suggested it was because my boss had other intentions. Note, he didn't remain my boyfriend for long. I now work on pay equity, and I've given a lot of thought to compensation on political campaigns. I was fortunate to work for two elected officials, my first boss as well as a female candidate, who paid me very fairly, but the majority of my friends who have worked on campaigns have done so for free or for next to nothing, especially at the U.S. Senate and presidential campaign levels. As you pointed out during the episode, this hugely affects the demographic makeup of campaigns and legislative offices, which in turn makes for policies that don't represent the American electorate. The gender disparity in campaign roles also exacerbates the wage gap for years to come, considering that many of these campaign staffers will go on to lateral positions in the candidate's legislative office. Thank you for highlighting many of the challenges facing women on political campaigns and for discussing the implications of pay inequality in politics. And we'll thank you for writing in, Mary Rose. Well, I've got a letter here from Ben who says we can also refer to him as Ben from Seattle. So Ben writes... 
Longtime listener, and I typically dig your work, but I have to take you to task about the Hillary Clinton episode and specifically the comments made about the quote, no room for fear. One of you made a connection between that quote and transphobic bathroom bills, and I'm sorry. I think that's entirely unreasonable and and undermines the very real historical record, which shows her lack of leadership, especially when it comes to fear. Please keep in mind that both Bill and Hillary's political record on gay and trans rights is absolutely detestable, and Hillary did not publicly support full equality for gay Americans until very recently. And anything else but full equality would be second-class citizenship and unconstitutional, right? More to the point, fear is what drove this country to an unnecessary war with Iraq, and Clinton voted in favor of that war. Her voting record is the same for the Patriot Act. Another example of how she is perfectly comfortable making room for fear to advance questionable domestic and international policy. Could you please revisit this issue and address this point? Indeed, Hillary Clinton's accomplishments are outstanding and very impressive, but let's not pretend her life is a fairy tale. She has made very serious mistakes and needs to be held accountable. Personally, I don't see her as a leader. Elizabeth Warren, on the other hand, is definitely a textbook example of a leader. Perhaps she should put a show together about her. So, Ben, thank you for your thoughts. And uh, Elizabeth Warren is a total badass, and she would be really fun to put an episode on. I also think it's worth noting that we stopped the episode at 1992. Oh, so there is thank a you, Caroline. Yes, there is a ton. A ton. I agree, Ben, that we yeah. we left out a lot. And a lot of people have written in, you know, ex- asking why we didn't talk about Benghazi in the emails, for instance. But we made a very specific decision to address her, for lack of a better word, her quote unquote young life uh, leading up to when she first landed in the White House, which was in 92. So obviously a lot has happened since then, including some questionable voting records and some questionable uh, support behind some policies, but that'll have to be for another episode. Yeah, I mean, uh, TLDR, there wasn't enough time. But uh, Ben, kudos to you for being informed and engaged, and thank you for listening. Um, and listeners, as always, if you have thoughts to share with us, momstuff at howstuffworks dot com is where you can send your letters. You can also tweet us at momstuff podcast or message us on Facebook. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about rom-coms and people of color, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 